2, and we're reading verses 11 through to 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thank you, Maria, and good morning, everyone. Isn't it great to worship together? And uh, just uh, by way of announcement, um, our annual general meeting is happening in a couple of Sundays on the 4th of uh, December, so uh, two Sundays' time, and uh, the agenda and minutes are at the back uh, for those interested. And uh, I think the report is there as well, our annual report. It'll be a little bit thinner this year, um, and that's something to pray about as well, which we'll talk about um, at the meeting, but it'll make it an easier read. You may not fall asleep, you may get through it quicker. So, um, see, that was a joke. Right. Um, let's move on. It, it was great to have, uh, it is great to have Dennis here. Um, thank you so much for sharing that uh, with us. And uh, we're reminded there's kind of a neat segue between last Sunday and our passage that uh, Maria just read out uh, this morning from the second half of Galatians chapter 2. And the segue starts halfway through verse 9 of Galatians 2. You remember the big meeting between uh, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles where he came to uh, defend his authority as an apostle and to check his message as well to make sure that uh, they were on the same page. And, um, and this is what they concluded at the end of that meeting. They encouraged us, says Paul, to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. And I thought it was a great reminder, we alluded to it uh, in our passage last Sunday, a great reminder to us as the church of that twofold ministry that we have, often one that's held in tension, it needn't be, uh, it's, it's clearly they sit there together. We proclaim the good news of Jesus, uh, freedom to those enslaved to sin, uh, the, the hope of, of, of the good news of Jesus, that there is forgiveness of sin and, and there's life everlasting with God. 
uh, at the same time, uh, we're to particularly uh, focus our hearts and our minds on the vulnerable, the poor, the weak, those um, who suffer uh, terrible injustices in our world. And it's a great reminder, a day like compassion, to be able to do that with the compassion uh, of Jesus in the same way that he modelled and exemplified to us. So I just want to say thank you for that and uh, encourage you all to catch up with Dennis um, in the foyer after the service. Uh, he'll be there and there's, um, you can talk more, more specifically uh, about things. There's also uh, opportunities, of course, uh, to uh, continue sponsoring. Um, you know, sometimes we, when you've been sponsoring a, a child or children for some time, they, as all children do, they get older, right? And it kind of catches us by surprise. And I don't know if, uh, if you're anything like us, we got a letter once that said, hey, your child is now out of the program. They're not a child anymore. They're a young adult who's working and, and uh, they gave us some great news. And it's like, oh, um, that may be where you're at at this time. And so there's always an opportunity to say, righto, well, let's, let's start again. Let's invest, invest again into a young life and uh, make a big difference, not only in their life, but in the community around them. Well, today we come to what I think is uh, uh, the most important part of the letter to Galatians. Um, the Apostle Paul's been writing, he's been reminding uh, this region of churches, not just one church, uh, uh, all the churches scattered around Galatia, um, and he's been writing to them about the value of the gospel, how it changes everything and transforms lives. And of course, as I said earlier, he's doing this to defend his own apostolic authority, um, the defense of 14 years of mission, preaching and proclaiming uh, this good news of Jesus. Uh, and he's come up, uh, as we heard last week, to Jerusalem, and he's uh, checking in with the apostles there. And um, the, the, the main value of the gospel, from Paul's perspective at least, is that what was once promised to God's special people, Israel, has now been extended to the whole world. Everyone is invited into uh, an opportunity to be in the family of God, to know God's peace, to know Him in relationship, in perfect relationship. Jews and Gentiles, all coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah, as King and as Lord. And this is good news. And uh, Paul, thankfully, realised that he, his good news message that he'd been proclaiming for 14 years after hearing it directly from Jesus, uh, actually aligned with the apostles who had known Jesus for a lot longer and far more intimately. And that's what was happening in Jerusalem. That's what we looked at last Sunday. They got together and, and Paul said, you know, this is my message. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they agreed that there is nothing further that needs to be done when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, it's the same. The truth of the gospel this free gift of grace, revealed by God himself, that Jesus, uh, in, in the person of Jesus, he comes, um, he lives amongst us, he teaches us, he lives by example, he perfectly keeps every letter of the law, lives a life in a sinful world, but he himself without sin. And then he comes to fulfill the mission God sent him for, to give up his life on the cross, to rise again and defeat the power of sin, that is death to come back to life and to offer all those who have faith in him new life. His death in our place, his resurrection from death, our promise of a new life, one that starts right now and continues on for life everlasting. Now, we know this, right? Many of us here, perhaps most of us here, dare I say it, all of us here may even believe this. We certainly know it. And yet the good news of God's grace in Jesus can so often become all too familiar you know, it can become almost redundant. I've heard people, I've felt it myself. You think, yeah, yeah, I know all that. You know, aren't we meant to move on to sort of more deeper, more enlightened, spiritual, profound things? It becomes familiar and we, the, the, the tenets is, but as good as that motivation might be that we would move on to better things, 
more often than not, we actually slip back into slavery. We slip back into that old school way of thinking that somehow we've got to do more or strive to know more or learn more or achieve more or follow the rules more closely or be careful to live more morally upright and pious lives so that we can prove we're Christians, so that we can please God and in somehow leverage His favour towards us. And of course, that's the whole point of this letter. It's to call uh, these Christians in their immediate threat and us today... It's to call us back from such futile and slave-like thinking and to remind us, as we've looked at, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus and his achievement on the cross alone is all that we need to be right with God, to have new life with God. And uh, there's nothing more that we can do, only Jesus and his perfect life is what pleases God. And God sees Jesus in us as sinners, as those who have turned and seek to follow Jesus in his ways, and by faith, with the Spirit's help, each day becoming more and more like him. And if you're anything like me, it's two steps forward and one step back, Uh, but at least we're heading in the right direction. Well, as we come to this part of chapter 2, Paul takes things to a new level yet again, which is to say this, he says, you know what, church, don't just believe the gospel and leave it there, but keep check of yourselves, making sure that we live in step with the gospel of grace. Now, what does that mean, to live in step with the gospel of grace? I want to ask you a question to ponder this morning. When you hear the word hypocrite or hypocrisy, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I want to suggest this morning, before we dive into the passage, that we and many others might think, uh, what we think is hypocrisy is uh, actually probably not hypocrisy at all when it comes to the Christian life. What do I mean by that? Well, according to what Paul says here, and he uses the word twice and quite uh, intentionally at the Apostle Peter's actions, which we'll look at in a minute, but Paul uses the word hypocrisy here, and according to the way he uses it and applies it, um, it's an entirely different sort of form of what you and I might readily jump to think about when we hear the word hypocrite. what's 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 a hypocritical Christian look like? Just keep that thought in your mind. It's actually, there's a worse kind of hypocrisy than what we've probably thought of or are used to, that Paul addresses here. And that's this, it's to claim that we know we've been made free in the gospel, that we're free in Christ, and yet to go on and live as if we're still enslaved to law-keeping, or to religious obligation, or to to self-righteous, moralistic living. And we all know no one likes a hypocrite, right? Right? We're very quick to call out hypocrisy in others, all of us, uh, especially today. Our society, is big, it's a new thing now. We, um, the, that's what the news is full of. We call people out on their hypocrisy uh, from our, you know, pious thrones of self-righteousness. Um, I'm not too cynical, am I? But uh, we do like to call out hypocrisy, and, and with, with good reason too, because there's nothing worse than hearing someone say one thing and then do an entirely contradictory thing altogether. The trouble is that what people often call out is hip, as hypocritical in the life of Christians, if you think about it, it, has more to do with judging someone by how perfectly righteous or morally pure their life is, when in fact that hasn't got much to do with what Paul is talking about here as hypocrisy. That doesn't have much to do with faithful gospel living at all. Let me give you an example to help explain. I grew up in a church culture, many of you will be familiar with this, no doubt, um, and it was well known that if you claim to be a Christian... There were certain things you just would not do. 
In fact, these were evidences that you were actually serious about your faith. Um, we weren't allowed to engage in sports on Sunday. Back then, that wasn't too much of a problem because most sports were done on Saturday. Whole new ball game today, isn't it? Uh, we weren't allowed to do sports on Sunday. Well, you weren't allowed to go to the pub anymore if you had been going to the pub before you came to faith in Jesus. That's not a place you would go to. You would certainly avoid the movies. Uh, I got told I wanted to go to Time Zone once because that's where all the cool kids were hanging out at 13. Um, and uh, I got told that the Time Zone was just a, a, a den of iniquity is what it was. It was a den of iniquity with the flashing light. You're all laughing now because all your kids have got like 10 times time zone just sitting in there on their screens, right? Um, but that's what it was called. These are places you couldn't go to. You had to be very careful about whose company you kept. You had to be very careful about that and, and being careful not to be seen with certain company that you'd be keeping. Monday to Saturday was basically about keeping away from worldly things and your public witness that you were in fact a Christian person separate from the world, different to those around you, was to make sure that you never crossed any of these lines and you certainly didn't blur them. I can remember coming home from work one day as a 19-year-old, uh, getting a lift uh, with some workmates who uh, all loved to smoke, um, mostly cigarettes, um, and as well as drink uh, on, on the way home from work. For some reason, you, it was kind of optional back then. You could, you could sort of do that um, if you didn't get caught. Anyway, as they pulled up to where they usually dropped me off, I got out of the car and I remember seeing this, um, this gentleman driving by in a car that was familiar to me because it's parked often in our church car park, the church I was uh, part of, where I met Melissa. Um, and this guy, he was a deacon in the church and I saw him and so I waved. Oh, it's, it's so-and-so. Well, he looked back at me, just stared. Yeah, sure, he probably didn't recognise me. It was in my overalls. I thought nothing of it until that Sunday morning when I went to church and I saw him in the foyer and didn't I get a grilling? It was in the context of love, but it went something like this. So uh, what were you doing on the side of the road hanging out with a bunch of guys smoking and drinking in a car? Um, who, who were those guys? Where had you been? What were you guys doing? Is that the company you keep? Don't you know that the company you keep says a lot about the kind of person you are? What kind of witness to Jesus is that? And on and on it went. I'll say it again, a lovely, godly, well-meaning Christian man. But he was pulling me up on what? On being hypocritical. In his thinking, which was and still is the case in some places, me being with those guys, I was being hypocritical to my faith. I was letting my good be evil spoken of as a saying might go and a whole lot of other uh, sort of thrown random words of wisdom, sort of in Proverbs and mostly not. Um, and this more religious and morally upright church leader, more religious and more morally upright than me, clearly was calling me out on being a hypocrite. Well, what Paul gives us in the second part of Galatians chapter 2 is a first-hand example of what actual hypocrisy is for a person who claims to follow Jesus. And it's basically this, going back to obligation and slavery to law-keeping and not engaging with people who might be different to us is hypocritical as a person who's truly free in Christ. You can see how it's completely different to how many of us define hypocrisy as Christian people. Saying you're free in Jesus, who alone has made you right with God and secured a rock-solid, unbreakable, eternal bond of relationship between you and Him. He's now our Heavenly Father. We are His daughters. We are His sons in His family. Only then to focus on our own good works, 
to, to, to memorize the laws and, and, and keep checking ourselves and, and watching, holding ourselves to this level of, of holiness and perfection that we've already been told was God's and God's alone and only Jesus has ever been the perfect human being. If that's our focus, that is hypocrisy, to dare claim to follow Jesus and to be free in him. And we're going to see two things in this passage. First, we're going to see how easy it is to believe the gospel, uh, only then to not live in step with it. And then we're going to see how we can ensure that we do keep in step with it. So the first point's this. It's easy to believe the gospel, but live as though we don't. I'm sure many of us can identify with this. To be a believer in Jesus Christ, you can even be a, a leader in the church. You can run great ministries. You can do lots of things um, in humble and servant-hearted ways and still not fully live in line with what the gospel is. And Paul shows us this in verses 11 to 14 of Galatians 2. Here's the situation, just a little bit of background. Uh, we've heard it read. Uh, we've already read of the meeting last Sunday in our passage uh, between Peter and Paul. Paul visited Jerusalem, which was Peter's uh, home turf, and there they agreed that they were on the same page when it comes to the gospel, that we are accepted by God on the basis of Jesus and his finished work and nothing else. You don't have to add anything to that. You certainly don't have to get circumcised if you are a Gentile and haven't been circumcised. Uh, that's off the cards now and all the men went phew and I had a, a few gentlemen after the service last Sunday go aren't we thankful for God's grace you know um, but they both uh, they, they both agreed together the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul very important thing they agreed that this uh, same ruling applies to everyone whether you're a Jew or a Gentile only Jesus is the one who saves and only faith in him alone is our focus well, now we read of a second meeting that takes place in our passage, and this time it's in Paul's home turf. It's in the city of Antioch, which has a really good sort of blend of Jew and Gentile together culturally. If there's ever a city uh, that had to deal with how the gospel applies to both Jews and, uh, and uh, keeping the Jewish law and to Gentiles who don't, Antioch is a great example of such a city. Um, and it's Paul's home turf. It's where kind of he's from. And, and Peter is there. And here in Antioch, Peter gets caught out. Uh, he's faced with the dilemma... And in true Peter fashion, if you know Peter, he's one of uh, the, um, I think, the, I, I love the guy because I go, well, if he was a disciple, <laughs> whew, I, I think I can be a disciple as well. Um, and, you know, and Jesus even said he's going to build his church on Peter and change his name. And when you see what Peter was like while he was hanging out with Jesus and the sort of person he was, well, he's, he's in a bit of a pickle again now, even though he's now spirit-filled and on point uh, for mission. But he gets called out by the Apostle Paul. This is pretty gutsy when you think about it. Paul knows he's the least of all the Apostles, right? He doesn't, he doesn't compare himself to these other Apostles because they knew Jesus personally. He was busy persecuting Jesus' followers when they knew Jesus. He's the least of the Apostles and yet he calls St. Peter out for hypocrisy. Peter has experienced true freedom in the Gospel. Can you remember when that happened? It happened first for him on a rooftop in a vision. It's recorded in Acts chapter 10. He, a faithful Jew, is having a sleep in the afternoon and a, a God gives him a vision and a sheet comes down, he sees, and there's a whole lot of um, non-kosher food on the sheet and he hears this very clear voice, says, Peter, get up and eat. And he's kind of, you know, in that, you get like it in that half sort of dreamy thing, he's going like, no, 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 I can't eat that, That's, this is unclean food, you know, get behind me, Satan, sort of thing. And the voice, obviously God, says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. It's an awesome vision. It's so powerful. It's culturally transformative. He's saying to Peter, 
it's all changed. And, and, and the symbol of this law-keeping of eating non-kosher food, now you're free to eat any food in Christ, is a symbol of what the, go- who the gospel is now for. It was just a relationship between God and his people. Now it's for everyone. And, and don't you dare call pagans and Gentiles unclean that which I have now in Christ, my son, called clean. So Peter knew it. And, and, and it kicked off a whole new mission for Peter, a whole new focus. You remember, he woke up and he went and he visited a guy called Cornelius. Cornelius is history's first, most likely, history's first Gentile convert, a Roman um, centurion. And he's got a little home group happening, a little life group in his home. And he'd been given a vision that this guy's going to knock on the door and trust him. He's good. He's not going to catch you out uh, for betraying the Roman Empire, the, 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 the secular religion at the time. He's not going to catch you out. Listen to him. He'll be able to tell you about Jesus. And that's how God was working back then. So Jesus, uh, Peter has experiences. He knows this freedom. Um, and he, he, he knows, he, and he's been living it out. He's been now eating with Gentile people. He's, yeah, I'll go to the barbecue, no worries. Cook another slab of pork. That's fine, I can eat the pork. Bring on the prawns. Like, that's, this is beautiful stuff. I can't believe God, um, you know, the two favourite food groups, prawns wrapped in bacon. Um, anyway, I'm, quite, I'm not quite sure it was like that, but you get the point. He was now eating freely with Gentile people, those outside of his own tradition. Now, this is a huge deal if you're Jewish, a huge deal. The Old Testament dietary laws were very strict and Peter is no longer obligated to keep them now that he's free in Christ. But now Peter gets some pushback. Some of those people who we heard about in the last couple of weeks, well-meaning, no doubt, but they were Jewish converts to Christ who were now saying, hang on a minute, whoa, 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 this is getting out of hand. Anyone and everyone's coming to faith in Christ. Mm-mm. We're God's special people and there's some, we've got to get some order in here and some rules. And those same kinds of people uh, saw Peter eating with Gentiles and turned up. And they didn't have to say much, but they gave a little bit of pushback and Peter folded. Peter folded. Um, They've come and they've said to him, you can't be eating with Gentiles, Peter. That's not what we do. You need to separate. And so Peter does this backflip. He's known for having done this before. Can you remember the last time Peter did this? I will follow you, Jesus, to the end, you know. I will be there, you know. Not you, Lord. Let me die for you. And within minutes, he's betraying Jesus publicly, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter is, it's, it's who Peter is, and yet God loves him and has set him free in Christ. He does a backflip. Now, Peter, at this point, by the way, is a key leader in the church. He's now spirit-filled, Acts chapter 2, if you want to get, and 3 and onwards, if you want to get a sense of how spirit-filled Peter is. He boldly preaches publicly to Jews and Gentiles alike about how all people have to come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's, he's, a, he's a new man now. He's a key leader in the church. But all of a sudden, what's he doing? He's building up a barrier again. He's rebuilding a barrier, a barrier that God had taken down. Peter obviously believed the gospel. He knew the freedom in Christ, but his behaviour and his lifestyle was as if he wasn't and hadn't and didn't. So look what Paul does. Paul confronts him head on and he does it publicly. It's not like he pulls him aside and sort of does the little quiet talk. He actually, Peter, this has got to stop now. And the reason for that was Peter's hypocrisy, which is what Paul calls it, was leading others astray. It was such an important issue, Paul doesn't deal with it privately, and he gets to the heart of it. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct, that's Peter and these others that he was influencing, to separate themselves from the Gentiles was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I pulled him aside and I had a meeting. This is the crux of the issue. You have the gospel truth that we can only be accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done. 
then you have the challenge of keeping in step with that same gospel. You can believe the gospel and yet we can get out of step. And Paul calls Peter back on this, uh, back from this backflip, as well as those who followed him, even Barnabas. Now, the picture that Paul uses with the word uh, hypocrisy there is that of walking straight. You know, when a police officer pulls you over and suspects that you've been drinking too much, you know how they sometimes get you out of the car and they get you to walk along a straight line? Good answer. Well done. I was just testing. I was hoping for about three people to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's an, outside, it's an outside illustration. Imagine that. We've seen it in the movies. Well, that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's giving the church, giving us a gospel sobriety test. He's asking us to look at how we live to see if we're walking right, in, if we're walking straight, if we're walking in line, in step with the gospel. Think about this. Peter's one of the leaders of the church. If anyone gets the gospel, it's him, right? This is a guy that's had it powerfully revealed to him. Knew Jesus personally, loved by Jesus, one of the inner, inner group with Jesus, and yet at this point he still doesn't fully get it. What does this tell us? This is what it tells me. It tells us how hard it is to fully bring ourselves in step with the gospel. And it warns us that even the best of us, the, the most convicted, the most passionate, uh, one of the greatest leaders in the early church, if even they can still fall out of step with the gospel, so can we, and so it's a caution. Um, that great writer, uh, quite a bit, and I do enjoy him, he's worth reading. In fact, he's, released a, he's releasing a, um, a biography, not of himself, but of all the influences in his own life. Tim Keller, he puts it this way, Christian living is a continual realignment process of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. Christian living is a continual realignment process of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. That's the first thing we see. The second thing is a little bit quicker. Well, how do we do that? How do we keep in step with the gospel? Well, what Paul does here in the rest of the chapter is to tell us, and not just to believe the gospel, but to actually walk straight, to keep in step with it. He's telling us how to take the uh, ticket off, our, uh, well, off ourselves, um, and he's telling us how to, uh, to, continue, to make sure that we continue to uh, realign if we need to and stay in step. How do we move from just believing the gospel to living with it? Well, three things very quickly. First, we've just got to get it into our heads and preach the gospel to ourselves daily. That reminder that nothing we do or nothing, there is nothing that we need to do to be any more accepted by God than what we've already, that's what's already been done for us by God in the person of Jesus. This is what gets to the heart of the issue. The problem is we start in our Christian life looking elsewhere. We move on from, we've even used passages that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians to condemn a church who are going wayward. Um, and uh, we use that as a, as, to, to, as a justification to sometimes go wayward ourselves. You know, where he says, um, oh, you know, I wish I could speak to you in more spiritually profound words and so on. But you're like infants, I still have to give you the basics of the faith. Uh, you know he's having a go at the Corinthian church. He's actually being cynical, sarcastic and satirical. He's actually saying, you're so superior. You know, I wish I could speak to you on those planes and levels that you're on, but instead I've got to teach you the basics. He's actually saying, because of the rest of Scripture, very clearly, this is what it's all about. And, and you've gone off on pursuing other things, meaning, well, good motives, but you've, you've forgotten this and you run the risk of no longer being in line with the gospel. So we've got to remind ourselves on a daily basis, who are we in Christ? We are truly free people. 
We've been bought with a price, with his blood. There's nothing more we can do. And so live in that space. And that's how we will flow on. The second thing um, is this. Well, actually, first of all, a reminder from Galatians 2, 15 to 16. It's on a slide there. Yeah, we ourselves are Jews by birth, says Paul, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person isn't justified by works of the law, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. So Jews and Gentiles, we're the same. That's what he's saying. And not by works of the law, because works of the law, by them, no one will be justified. Here's how it works. We know we're declared righteous in God's sight, not because we've lived perfect lives, but because Jesus has. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. Instead of relying on that, Peter was doing something else just in case. Just in case, I think I might just make sure I'm doing the right thing. He was living as if the old rules still mattered. Well, the second thing is this, is to realise that when we try uh, to earn God's approval through our own performance, we're actually sinning. It gets really serious. It's not just unwise to think that we can earn God's righteousness. It's not just foolishness or futile. It's actually sinful when we try to live as if we have to earn God's approval. Or where we try to demonstrate to others that we're different to them by separating from them, those outside of Christ. When we do that, we're actually sinning. Have a look at the way Paul puts it in Galatians 2, verses 17 to 19. But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ... We too were not found to be sinners, uh, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a sinner, a transgressor, because through the law, I died to the law, so that I might be free to live to God. It's a little bit clunky, but let's unpack it. Paul is saying that all of us want to be justified. We want to stand before God and know know that we're right. And we have now come to realise that we are all sinners, we're all in the same boat, that there's no advantage to being Jewish or religious or, or pagan. Um, everybody is a sinner apart from Christ's work at the cross. So what happens when we realise this? What happens when good religious people start hanging out with people who are sinners? Does that make Jesus complicit in sin? Are we bringing Christ in us back into sin by hanging out with sinful people or those who are outside of Christ? That's what Paul's... And the answer is, of course not. Jesus is bigger than that. He, he lived amongst sinners, became friends with sinners... He had a reputation for being friends with sinners. When religious people start realising that they're no better or worse than unsaved sinners, does that somehow contaminate us? Paul says no. Actually, when we try to keep the barrier up, us together with everyone else, between us and everyone else, then we're sinning. When we think that we uh, are separating and doing the right thing by God in doing that, separating from people who actually God loves people that we might love, family, neighbours, friends, those we work with, when we do that, we're sinning, we're stepping back into another form of righteousness, it's called self-righteousness. And when we think that some are saved by just pure grace, and that we're also saved by grace, you can have both, you can say, yeah, you're saved by grace, you've just made it into the kingdom, I get that, you're a pretty bad person, isn't God's grace amazing? But me, I was saved by grace plus my great life, like, you know... I was born into a church, my parents were in ministry. And, you know, when we start thinking like that, we've done the same thing. We've put ourselves into self-righteousness. We've gone back to slavery. In fact, it's foolishness and it's madness. That's what Paul is saying. Secondly, we're sinning because the standards that we're trying to, to, to bring back in are actually going to turn on us and condemn us. You know, when a, a politician 
it's not the story when a politician opens his mouth or her mouth. It, you know when a politician uh, works really hard to bring in some new laws, some new rules, and they get passed? And then you read about 18 months later in the paper, they get busted by those same rules. They've broken those same rules. It's a little bit like that. Paul says the very standards we're trying to bring back are the standards that are going to end up condemning us. That's what Paul's been saying. How do we not just believe the gospel, but also keep in step with this, with it? Because after all, as he closes in verses 20 and 21, this is for all of us. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Church, uh, we're going to pause there in Galatians. We'll pick it up again uh, the rest of the letter next year. But as we do that, as we come to this Christmas uh, festive season where true joy, genuine peace, authentic relationship with God in Jesus Christ is the message that's made known, and we get to live that. Let us always remember we're not only just saved by grace, only to then turn around and go back to living by law, but we're called to continue living as true, truly free people, to continue living as people who God has been gracious to, undeserved favour from God, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for this wonderful truth. We thank you for the simplicity of it, that you, the creator of all things, would come into our world you would humble yourself, lower yourself and become not just a man but a, a servant, one who came to serve others. You didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or used but you came in obscurity, you came in humility and yet Father throughout your life, uh, uh, Jesus throughout your life and your death and resurrection it demonstrated to us that um, that this living as God the creator humble, meek and mild is actually the most powerful message to our broken world we thank you that this good news about Jesus this gospel is the same power that saves us we thank you that it is the only power that saves us I thank you that we get to do this in community together as a church. Father, we, at the end of hearing this, we ask for your forgiveness for times that may have jumped into our minds uh, and hearts where we think, yeah, I have put up new boundaries, I have rebuilt walls that you in Jesus Christ, Father, have taken down. We thank you for your forgiveness. It's there for us at all times. And we declare again the joy of the freedom we have in the good news of Jesus. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are there to prompt us, to remind us, to guide us, to keep us in step with that good news. We ask that you'd have your way in our hearts and our lives as we do that together as your people in this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.